We may see the young Shakespeare, therefore, spending 30 or 40 hours each week in memorizing, construing, parsing, and repeating prose and verse in Latin. We may hear him talking the language to his schoolmaster and to his fellow pupils. Peter Ackroyd in Shakespeare, a biography. A common argument of anti-Stratfordians is that Shakespeare was uneducated. He only completed grammar school and never even attended a single day of university. So it seems impossible that a man with a grade school education could grow up to be such a prolific writer. That idea, though, completely disregards the realities of Elizabethan grammar school. Yes, Shakespeare only attended for about four years. However, in these four years, he received an education similar to that of a modern-day classics undergraduate. The students, by years three and four, were encouraged to speak only Latin. That means for 12 or more hours a day, for five and a half days per week, for 44 weeks per year, they were speaking Latin. To say Shakespeare was uneducated is simply incorrect. He was not as educated as other writers, but his grammar school education gave him all the tools necessary to write his plays. Today, we will be taking a closer look at what Shakespeare's education was like and how it contributed to the writer he became. Grab your quill and ink pot and let's head to school. Hello, and welcome to Breaking Bard, a Ripe Good Scholar podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, an avid Shakespeare fanatic, also known as Ripe Good Scholar on a tiny corner of the internet. I'm joined, as always, by my husband, Eli. Hi. Who is familiar with Shakespeare, but not to the ex- crazy extent that I am familiar with Shakespeare. This is true. Today, we're going to be talking about Elizabethan grammar school, what it was like, and how it shaped Shakespeare as a writer. Yeah, this is one of the ways you're more fanatical about Shakespeare than I am. You look up Elizabethan grammar school, whereas I am like, this play was neat. Yes. <laughs> but I also have my weird mission in life to be like, Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, you guys. Because, and par- and this is part of that, because a lot of people assert that Shakespeare was essentially uneducated. Some people have even said he must have been illiterate. Which, knowing what we know of grammar school, and as you'll see through our discussion, is just simply not true. Yeah, I, I understand that Elizabethan school is not exactly what 8th grade was for us. So I actually did the math um, because I was curious about how grammar school translated to what school would be today. Um, so I did... So we'll cover the details of the schedule later, but basically they took four years of grammar school. Okay. Um, on one website, I saw that it was 44 weeks out of the year, which is most of the year. So I took that pretty well on point, but some people said they went year round. I imagine for certain religious holidays, there would be a break from school. Gotcha. They would learn... Uh, I've heard six days out of the week or five and a half is the average I've seen of there was like a half day on Thursdays. Um, working 12 plus hours a day. What? Yes. That's, no, that's too much. So that ends up translating into 11,616 total hours spent at grammar school. 
that sounds I have in no four frame years. of reference. Okay. I will give you a frame of reference. Okay. Um, in our modern school system, at least here in America, average school year is about 180 days out of the whole year. Oh, it's a lot less. Yes. Um, for 12 years. I'm just counting through high school because that's our standard you have to go this far. Okay. Education. For about six hours a day. Okay? Yeah. Which translates to 12,000. 960 hours. Oh, God. So, that's um, a difference of 1,344 hours, or about an extra 112 Elizabethan grammar days. So, I divided it by 12. I didn't do the math on the half days, because, like, what? Um, But, essentially, if William Shakespeare went to school for an extra 112 days, he would have the same hours of schooling that modern day high school students walk away with. Okay, so he had roughly similar level of education. At least and in the amount of our... at least in the amount of like hours schooled. Exactly. And when we and we'll get into more detail of the content of the class, we'll go year by year as to what they learned. Yeah, because I, I, I would assume that like if they're only doing four years, then they're skipping the finger-painting years. Yes. Because there, there's a, at least a thousand of those hours that we spend is spent doing, you know, ABCs. Well, exactly. He would have basically knew how to read before he started grammar school. Okay. His mom would have been in charge of teaching him those basics. Okay, so he got roughly... 12 years of education in four years after already learning the basics. Exactly. And based on what we know of the syllabus, a lot of people have kind of compared it to an undergraduate degree in classics. Oh, God. A lot of Elizabethan grammar schools taught more than an undergraduate in classics would learn today. And these are like 11-year-olds. What? Yes. So, let's start now how the system started, because this was actually pretty interesting to me. So, we all know Edward VI, Henry VIII's only legitimate son. Yes, the the short-lived. Yes, he reigned six years. In those six years, he established a network of grammar schools. I mean, that's more productive than most kings. Exactly. The idea being that it would benefit society to have some sort of basic level of education. You know, it's, it, it would be nice if people learned that lesson. Yeah, it would be. So he achieved this kind of a mixed bag because he did achieve this by diverting some of the funds intended for the chantries and monastic colleges that, as a fierce Protestant like his father, towards the end, he didn't really want to fund those. Gotcha. So they took the money for, from religious institutions to fund these um, grammar schools, which actually still bear his name. Honestly, that doesn't seem like a mixed bag at all. Well, I guess if you're looking at it from the perspective of that time, stealing uh, money from intended for the church for schools might. I get you. But what I find most interesting is that this was not something Mary undid. Hmm. 
At least not efficiently. That, like I said, these are um, schools are still in place today. Um, Please tell me they have better hours. Yes, obviously they're different, <laughs> but they still are King Edwards. Nice. Be- I, I didn't see anything about like it being abolished and then reinstated by Elizabeth, and I feel like if Elizabeth had reinstated it, it wouldn't be called Edwards. Yeah. So, because for background, a big part of uh, Mary's policy while queening was undoing every Protestant thing that had been done before. Yeah. Except these grammar schools, apparently. Nice! So, their basic intention was to, and I'm going to quote here from um, Soul of the Age by Jonathan Bate. Um, It was one of my big sources, along with Peter Aykroyd's uh, Shakespeare, a biography. So this is from Soul of the Age, that the schools were intended to lay the foundation of the state or commonwealth through literacy and moral education. Yeah. Now, the commonwealth meant boys that were at least middle class. Gotcha. You didn't need those girls or those poors learning. That's not good for anybody. Of course, the poor's got to farm that dirt. Exactly. So, um, and not just anybody, it wasn't, um, it was actually a pretty regulated system in the sense that we know what textbook they all used. They all had roughly the same schedule, roughly the same syllabus. And wow, it wasn't just that, like, not just anybody could be a schoolmaster, mm-hmm. which to me, there, there are some theories that during the lost years, Shakespeare was a schoolmaster. And I just feel like that is something that I'd be a little surprised if no records survived, since he would have had to have a license. Other people say he was a tutor to a wealthy family, which obviously didn't need a license. So you could do what you wanted. So wait, there, there's Shakespeare, The Lost Years? Yeah, you don't know about The Lost Years? No. It's a chunk of years of his life that are just unaccounted for. Huh. Essentially, he gets, he gets married, his daughter is born... And then he's in London. There's no documentary evidence for what he were doing and a million possible things he could have been doing. I think the most likely was maybe not right away, but he definitely joined an acting troupe at some point. Like, that's how he got to London. Let's all be honest. Anyway. So the schoolmasters would obtain a license from the local bishop. um, And then also there were some subjects that, like, if they were going to teach it, they had to have some sort of... Um, expertise in it. Okay. So it's not like I could sit there and teach Greek. I had I don't know any Greek. Okay. I found that particularly interesting. I could teach woodshop. You could. No, I could. <laughs> no, you could. Unfortunately, the school registers the the, the records of who attended what school mm-hmm. in Stratford have been lost. So we don't. We don't have documentary evidence that Shakespeare attended school. However, um, his father was on the town council, serving as essentially mayor for a while. That would have given him the right to attend the school. Okay. And we know that John Shakespeare, throughout his life, reported uh, repeatedly... Um, applied for a coat of arms. So he was constantly looking to advance his family. So there really would have been no good reason for him to not send his son for the free education he was entitled to. Gotcha. So basically, 
he was a mover and a shaker in the in Stratford upon Avon. And he was for a very long time. Well, so the thing is that's interesting um, when we talk about John Shakespeare's. Everybody's like to say like, there's no way a Glover's son from Stratford, and it's true. John Shakespeare was a Glover. He made gloves, yeah. probably some other things too, but gloves. Okay. He also was like mayor and a high higher up political figure in the town of Stratford. So it's not like he was like a random podunk dude. Like Okay. He so was he- well known and well respected. Not only would it make sense that he would go to grammar school, mm-hmm. but more than any other playwright of the time, he references grammar school. Like even we went to see Titus Andronicus and they talked about grammar school. Yeah, as, as though the goths went to grammar school which is funny <laughs> but um <laughs> that, that is pretty that's pretty good so when we say grammar school we're pretty much talking about latin latin yes there was maybe one year spent learning you know english but latin they learned Latin. By the fourth year, they were in, they were speaking entirely Latin at school. Oh. And that's wow. what I mean when people say, like, it's equivalent to a classics better than a classics yeah. undergrad today. And then we also know that one of the schoolmasters, I believe right before Shakespeare would have attended, um, he also advocated for the teaching of Greek. Okay. In grammar school. So, that gives us some indication that potentially he learned some Greek as well, despite not having this specific schoolmaster. Which would have been remarkable in the sense of it's worth remarking, because there were only a handful of grammar schools in England at the time that taught Greek. Hmm. Which may also explain Ben Jonson's quote of Shakespeare having little Latin and less Greek. Because he did learn some, apparently. Ben Johnson just grew up speaking Latin. The daily schedule of these students was rigorous, to say the least, and extremely structured because it was meant to prepare them for real life. Um, kind of a, a training ground for society itself, as Peter Aykroyd put it. Okay. I what? assume meaning, like, you go, you work all day, you, you know. Yeah, make loves. No oh, gloves. I thought you said loves, and I was like, I mean, no, I don't think they were learning that. No, in no. making love has to be rigorous and scheduled. <laughs> the the school that Shakespeare attended um, is actually still there today. Oh, the room. So it was um, behind the church, above the guild hall. Um, it, it's a long, narrow room with high oaked beam ceilings, um, and it actually would have windows that would have overlooked Church Street which I imagine had to provide some distraction for the lucky boys that got to sit by the windows. Some good people watching going on right there. Which is better than the Latin speaking going on inside. Yes. Um, In the summer, school would have started at 6 in the morning. In the winter, it would have started at 7. When they got there, they would have had attendance. Mm -hmm. They would have said their prayers and sang a psalm. And then sat in lessons until nine. At nine, they had a quick breakfast of bread and ale. 
<laughs> yeah, alright, this school is even better. And then they would have more lessons until 11. Alright. At 11, they went home to have lunch. And they'd have to be back by 1, which is a decent lunch. Yeah, that's a pretty decent two hours. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah. But. <laughs> not not a lot of people get that uh, today. They certainly don't get ale with their breakfast. So anyway, they'd come back to class at about 1. And then they would learn throughout the entire afternoon. There would a, be a brief 15-minute recess for, like, wrestling or archery, you know. You gotta let the kids have some fun. <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say that seems so short, but, you know, they weren't just heading home for two hours. <laughs> True. I mean, and yeah, then, they were out chasing girls and whatnot. Probably. And then um, school would be released at 5 o'clock in the evening. That's... Wow. Yeah, so like, yeah, they got that two-hour break, but they had like, uh, you know... Four more hours. Yeah, than we do. So like, nah. Yeah. In the balance, not great. Not a fun time. So this schedule was followed for five and a half days out of seven. For like we said, 44 weeks out of the year. For most of the year, so. Man. Yeah, Elizabethan Grammar School didn't mess around. Yeah, they and, really didn't. That's a that's a lot of Latin and possibly Greek. Oh, wait. We haven't even gotten to what they're actually doing for those 12 plus hours a day. Like the school registers, the syllabus for Stratford has been lost to time. There, there have been fires in Stratford, plus, I mean, at some point. Why am I keeping this anymore? <laughs> uh, yeah. But because... Um, uh, no, people are really going to want to know what that Glover's son did during his days. Yeah, no one, w- no one was prepared for what the future would want to know. Uh, but pretty much all grammar schools followed the same curriculum. So we can look at what other schools taught to get an idea. Okay. Um, so before starting grammar school... Um, Shakespeare would have had to demonstrate that he could read and write in English. Okay. I'm assuming to at least some basic degree. Yeah. Um, and this is, because I'm pulling from several different sources, it, it, it was a little hard to say, like, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. I got pretty good ideas, but from what I understand, he had to be able to demonstrate he could read and write, at least on some basic level. Um, because the first year was called Petite or Petty School. Um, which really was to prepare them for Latin studies. So they would continue working on their English grammar. Mm-hmm. And they would also study the catechism. Okay. Which would be the catechism of the Anglican Church. Cause, gotcha. That's the well, church rule, right? Yes. Yeah, so pretty much they learned English by learning the church rules. So the the first year was reading rules that you have to follow or go to hell. Which seems less interesting than book reports, which is saying something. Mm-hmm. Well, I went to private schools. Oh, you, you're familiar with the reading about <laughs> rules. <laughs> so then in the second year, uh, we would have started getting into Latin. We know what their textbook would have been. It was the same across all the schools. It was called A Short Introduction to Grammar. And it was combined printing of two different books. 
an introduction to the eight parts of speech, and Bravissima Institutio, which I assume is where a lot of the Latin came from. Okay. Um, so they had a Latin book and a book <coughs> about how to read the Latin book. Probably. I don't know. They didn't go a lot into, like, we learned slowly what was in the book, but bottom line is they memorized this textbook. Oh, gross. Yeah. Um, because basically they would start with short kind of quippy Latin phrases um, that applied to daily life. Um, typically, they would have been Lily's language exercises. Okay. We know Shakespeare learned these. Pretty much anything he quotes, anything he brings up, anything he spells is Lily. Gotcha. So he knew Lily's Latin. Yeah, and Lily's Latin continued throughout their education. Right now, we're at the language exercises, the short phrases that they're going to translate from English to Latin and Latin to English all day long. Memento mori. <laughs> um, but this would have taught him the cases, um, numbers, genders, articles, the basics of Latin grammar. Gotcha. Um, this would continue on to imitation, uh, making up their own sentences, conversations, and, and like letters. Because a lot of what we have of Latin actually is letters. So they might, in these instances, kind of imagine they're a particular person or in a particular situation. Oh. Um, oh, interesting. So this was starting to introduce them to rhetoric and persuasive arguments. Um, rhetoric here meaning kind of ordering your speeches mm-hmm. and um, they would have learned a wide range of literary techniques and appropriate styles for different situations how to talk about a sad situation how to talk about a happy one you know yeah, stuff that I think we're going to see in most playwrights of the time and at the end of this we're going to get into specific things that fed into Shakespeare's writing in particular, but you can start to see now how this quote-unquote basic education would have provided him with more than enough tools to write what he wrote. Yeah, it seems even this basic education is involving some creative writing exercises that's asking you to put yourself in the position of historical characters. I mean, that's essentially all it is besides translation. So now that the boys have learned simple phrases and started to construct some of their own simple phrases, we move into the third year. This is when they would have been starting to speak only Latin in the classroom, even to their friends. If they were at school, they were speaking Latin, and I probably they were encouraged to speak Latin to each other outside of school, but... I remember that year of Spanish. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh man, but I don't want to try. Exactly. Um, so then, they w- this is when they start looking at um, kind of longer excerpts from the classics. Ovid, Virgil, Aesop's Fables. Homer. Homer. Things like that. Now, they would be reading choice passages rather than the full plays. So this wouldn't have really been where he would have learned necessarily his dramatic style. Um, but it was kind of customary for the period. You read passages. You didn't necessarily read the whole text beginning to end. Which, when you think about, you didn't have a plethora of access to books. Nor did you have a lot of leisure time to sit and read books. Hmm. So you're going to read choice passages that feel relevant to your life. Makes sense. 
Um, now, again, with all the classics, students are encouraged to remember the text because most of the students probably didn't have the texts at home. Oh. So if you don't have the book in front of you, you have to remember what it said. Suddenly a lot of Shakespeare's histories are making sense. Yep. Um, not only was it possible, but it was encouraged for students to grab passages from a lot of different sources to construct something new. Now today, that would, without like citing your sources a million times, that would be considered plagiarism. Um, but back then, it was just kind of... It was what you did. It was more adaptation or assimilation. Like, it wasn't... And if you're just going off the classics, everyone knows what you're pulling from. Exactly. Again, a lot of his writing is making more sense. Yes. So, finally, we get to the last year. Um, I One book said, if Shakespeare continued that far, I believe it was Soul of the Age. Um, I don't see why he would have stopped suddenly. But I'm also not an expert, so I just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, but anyway, they would have been uh, translating, continuing to translate back and forth all day. But now they would have been looking at more extended works. They would have um, not just gone for a brief passage. It would have been a whole story. Okay. Um, so this is where they would have really started to develop the art of writing. Along with that would have been the art of oratory and elocution. Elocution. That is pronouncing? Yes. Gotcha. So they not only learn the art of writing, they earn the art of speaking. And in the sense of arguments and debates and things like that. Okay. Conversation. So he, he didn't, as he learned to write, he learned to connect the writing to the spoken word. Exactly. Um... And, like the classic philosophers, they were encouraged and taught to look at both sides of any argument. Um, they would have learned, you know, how to argue the both, si- both sides of any argument, which I think we see frequently. And, finally, um, poetry, it w- he wouldn't have been sitting there reading it. He would have been hearing it. You know, yeah. and so, and again, because there weren't a, lo- a plethora of books available, it would have had to be heard. And so they would have also performed plays. If they were working on a dialogue between two characters to, you know, if they were, they weren't only going to read Julius's writings, they were going to act them out. Oh. Yes. Okay, so basically English grammar school. That's exactly kind of my point of all of this. And I'm going to get into, we're going to talk about now some of the more specific ways that it would have shaped him as a writer. These couple years of grammar school seem to really lay down a good foundation for a writing career. They did, and they gave him more Latin than he was ever going to need in his whole entire life. Yeah, it seems really bad at preparing you for business life, but really great for preparing you for the theater, honestly. Exactly. Well, and I mean, <laughs> the point was to to kind of learn the, the you know, the language of the educator, you know, to... Because mm. again, 
the field workers weren't going to grammar school. Okay. It was the merchant's sons. It was the, you know, and, and not just any merchant, like the merchants that were doing well. Okay, so this was a chance for the merchants to learn enough of the upper crust's way of speaking and talking and learn enough of their knowledge base to not embarrass yourself in front of your betters. Pretty much. (laughs) Probably. You know, because you're going to learn whatever trade you're going to learn as an apprentice. Yeah. Even the acting troupe had apprentices. They don't need to, you know, kind of frankly, much like school today, they're not interested in teaching you professional skills. Yeah. They're teaching you how to function in the basics of society to not be a dumb dumb. Okay. I can get behind that. So, um, but what really makes this interesting is at the time, we were kind of having a Latin revival, you, you know, during the Renaissance, but, you know, you, you saw a lot of kind of Latin Roman classical ideas coming back, you know, well, yeah. debate arguments. And, and a lot of times when you talk about this Latin revival in England, you're talking about Francis Bacon or Philip Sidney. Um, but as, as Peter Ackroyd asserts in his biography... Shakespeare being in a grammar school makes him just as much a part of this Latin revival as they are. He learned just as much Latin, maybe a little less, but like, he's part of that. The playwrights are part of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, these ideas that are permeating the English world. Mm-hmm. And you know, now that the Eastern Roman Empire has fallen, you don't have to feel competitive with them anymore. So you can be like, oh, they had some good stuff. So and 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 most of, and a lot of the writing conventions that we see in Shakespeare, we see in Latin. You know, this kind of you know, and when we talk about Shakespeare, it's always like, oh, sometimes the word order is kind of funky, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of kind of piling on of of metaphors and adjectives and you know to kind of slowly amplify your point. Um, these are Latin conventions. These are things he would have learned in the basics. This was year two of grammar school. You know, it just got better in year three and four. So this is something I found, frankly, terribly interesting because you have, you know, a lot of what makes Shakespeare hard today of what we kind of joke around about on shows like Upstart Crow are, oh, I'm going to mess up the word order to be poetic. It was Latin. Oh. In a way. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I just, I found that really interesting. And so then as, those are the basics of what, those are how the basics shaped his writing. And as we continue on, he would have learned grammar. He would have learned to hone metaphors and kind of develop this verbal symmetry to his arguments and, and speeches and writings. Um, and he would have learned that the whole you know, whatever you're talking about, the whole can precede the parts. And I'm having trouble pulling a specific speech right now, but he'll often start with his big idea and kind of break it back down. To be or not to be, that is the question. Let me examine that question for the next three hours. Exactly. The structure of his writing was shaped by the basics of Latin. Interest. That's very interesting. Yeah, and not only that, Shakespeare, more than any other dramatist in the period, 
alludes to grammar schools. And, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this, and it, it is. It's just always. Yeah, um, he does mention it in Titus Andronicus. Yeah, like we talked about that earlier. He talks about it in Titus Andronicus. He talks about it. Um, so, in, in Mary Wives of Winter, which this was cut from the performance we saw last night, but one of her sons runs into Hugh Evans, who's the pastor and the schoolmaster. And he, like, quizzes him on Latin. And Mistress quickly, like, chimes in, and it's funny. But when we look at what we know of Elizabethan grammar school, that was exactly how it would have happened. Hmm. You know, that, okay, what is this part of speech? How does this go? What's this in Latin? Say in English now, blah, blah, Is is how the scene goes. That's what happened in grammar school. Like, like he, he wrote out grammar school and, like, added in some funny mistress quickly misunderstandings. Because those silly women didn't know Latin. Yeah, they were being silly instead of studying a dead language. Was uh, dead yet? It was pretty dead. But not yet. Not quite dead yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> Latin um, was the guy on the cart in Monty Python. <laughs> I'll go for a walk. Uh, but uh, it's it's really interesting because with the Shakespeare denying crowd, you see a lot of people saying, "Well, how could someone write about all of these topics who wasn't well educated?" Well, the grammar school education was pretty extensive from our current point of view, and also, I don't see a privately educated. Uh, you know, Noble's son who has a tutor understanding the terror of being quizzed in the street by your schoolmaster. Well, exactly. One of the people most often suggested by the anti-Stratfordians as being the real Shakespeare is the Earl of Oxford, who, as an earl, would have had a private tutor. Also, one of the main arguments I've heard is that, like, oh, Shakespeare wrote so much about court life that clearly it had to have been someone at court. However, histories, news of the time, what do you think it was about? Court. No one gives a poop what Joe down the road is doing. Writing at the time was about nobles. But anyway, there's this assertion that it it had to have been someone noble because they knew about court. However, they ignore that he writes explicitly and extensively about grammar school education. And I think that that alone lends itself to some of the classism that's behind this argument. Well, obviously, the Earl of Oxford could have understood what was happening in the simple village grammar school. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And when that's just not true. And frankly, to kind of circle back to court, Shakespeare was in court. He did court performances. He was in court. Court happened. So he was part him. of court. So, But yeah. he was literally in the court doing yeah, performances. Yeah, so like, you know, and this idea that like, ooh, no, they never would have let the peasant actors see the, you know, intrigue that was happening at court. What? Yes, they would have. They didn't care what the peasant was doing. Exactly. So anyway, I digress. It, it, it is a weird argument that uh, the nobles can intricately understand what life is like for the commoners when they just don't care. Exactly. 
If if you're making a two thousand pounds a year, having land that was owned by all of your ancestors, and all you have to do is not mess it up. Well, exactly, and I just like. You know, I think that a lot of people like to picture kind of, you know, the lords of the villages being like Lord Grantham of Downton Abbey, who seems genuinely invested in the town. Which, like, maybe by the 19-teens and 20s, they were more interested in Elizabethan times zero Fs given. (laughs) Like, you know? So, last thing, um that I did want to touch on is how kind of what he learned in school and what we know was kind of publicly produced by schools, probably mostly universities, but this was still started in grammar school of debating being a sort of public entertainment. Yeah. So, you know, men would go and, and, and these debates were seen as contests of wit which, look at any Shakespeare play, and there is at least one scene that you could qualify as a contest of wit. Some whole plays depend on contests of wit. Like, Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. So, this is where he learned that. Interesting. And so, you have these public debates happening at the local gathering places in pubs. What did we see grow out of inns and pubs? Syphilis. Theaters. Ah, right. Theaters. Um, Because they learned lessons on action and delivery. There was a quote from the Ackroyd biography that I just want to read to you and see if it evokes the same Shakespearean speech that it did for me. The students would be taught to pronounce everything audibly, leisurely, distinctly, and naturally, sounding out especially the last syllable that each word may be fully understood. Utter every dialogue lively as if they themselves were the persons who did speak that dialogue. Yeah, I see what you mean. That, that's kind of what iambic pentameter does. You pronounce the last... Uh, well, exactly. Not only that, though, but that specific quote, which I I mean, he might as well have said, pronounce it trippingly on the tongue. Yeah. It's like, it just made, the whole time I was reading this segment of what these lessons would have entailed, I was like, this is what Hamlet says. Wow. Yeah. Uh, geez. Dan Aykroyd's really smart. Peter Aykroyd, dear. Ah, well, now I'm less impressed. (laughs) (laughs) Through these sort of exercises, um, as Peter Aykroyd puts it, the truth of any situation becomes infinitely malleable and wholly dependent on the speaker's eloquence. That might as well be the thesis to some of Shakespeare's plays. Exactly. I mean, you can... I mean, like, pick a play... And that's what he did, you know? And it's just so... I don't know. It's just like, I I was reading all this. I was like, no, he did not need to be university educated to write what he wrote. Yeah, it seems like he was following 
the basic grammar school advice. Exactly. Grammar school gave him everything he needed to be the writer he was. Grammar school and his experience as an actor. Thus concludes another episode of Breaking Bard. I hope you enjoyed the time you spent with us today. In the next episode, we'll be discussing Titus Andronicus. That will be uploaded two Mondays from now. If you need some more Shakespeare fun in the meantime, please check out my blog at ripegoodscholar.com or look me up on Twitter and Instagram at ripegoodscholar. If you like this podcast and don't want to miss an episode, make sure to hit subscribe. If you really enjoyed the time today, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps this podcast get recommended to others. And remember, our court shall be a little academic, still and contemplative in living art.